0: Moments That Matter. Moments That Matter. Moments
1: That Matter. Welcome to this latest edition of the Moments That Matter podcast series. I'm your host, Darren Clear, and as you may already be aware, we here at Balance to Life are dedicated to the idea that when organizations care about the moments that matter across their people's work and life, they can then, in turn, create the environments for well-being and performance in order to rise these in tandem with one another. And along these lines today, we're featuring an extremely insightful and influential discussion with Genevieve Hawkins, who not only serves as the General Manager Insurance at Coles, but has also recently written her first book, Mentally at Work. Now, Balanced to Life, we've long known the importance that leaders can play in the well-being of their people, so we were incredibly excited to connect with Genevieve and thrash out some of the topics in her new book, where her unique combination of skills and experience has served to blend the worlds of mental health science, behaviour change, connections and storytelling that has been expertly channeled to offer leaders a practical guide to what it truly means to be mentally at work. Now, as usual, this will be a wide-ranging conversation, but it will hopefully provide an overview of Genevieve's book and the meaningful experience and advice that she's made an integral part of her successful career to date. So thank you again for joining us, and I hope you take away plenty of moments that matter from our conversation today with Genevieve Hawkins. Okay, thanks for joining me today, Genevieve. I will get you to start uh, just by giving me a bit of a brief rundown of your career to date.
0: Thanks, Darren. It's great to be here. And I do laugh on brief, given my uh, <laughs> my background. Uh, but perhaps just as a, a uh, just a brief explanation. So my undergrad was as an occupational therapist. So I had always had a long interest in mental health right back from when I was studying then. But I've worked in a whole range of different places along the way. So moved from health into consulting and worked a lot with people that were returning to work from injury. So, again, dealing with sort of problems from a, a psychological point of view and return to work. And then started getting more involved in the prevention side of things, for still in consulting, and then got involved in insurance. And that sort of then has taken me on its journey because I've gone and kind of back into consulting and then back into corporate world and uh, find myself now back in the corporate world again. So I work at Coles and I've been here for uh, I think about seven or eight years now and um, currently as the general manager of Colesbrook Insurance which is all of their internal insurances which includes a large component of personal injury work with workers compensation and public liability.
1: And you've recently published your first book. So that's what we want to cover a lot of the sort of themes of that book today, Mentally at Work. Uh, Can you give us an outline of the book? And I guess what your target audience is and what the purpose was behind writing the book?
0: Yeah, so if I if I start with perhaps target audience and then come back to then saying this is kind of in the key components of the book, because for me, the target audience was leaders and particularly leaders of leaders. So not not necessarily those that have just started out in leading a team, but more in, in people who are leading teams or teams or have been leading teams for some time. And trying to help them to understand what they need to do, A, in the pressures of their own life, in looking after their own mental health, but also understanding how they impact what goes on for people within their workplace and what they can do to actually create a mentally healthy workplace, which to me is the thing that's really, really needed in this current world. And I guess that sort of, um, you know, it comes back that sense of purpose for me is one of recognising that leaders are grappling with this. We've become so much better at talking about mental health and being able to recognise that, that's, that there's a challenge. And we've kind of, we've shifted, because of COVID, we've shifted a bit of the conversation. So we've shifted from, we should talk about this thing, but this thing was something that other people had and we didn't kind of thing, into a space of, oh, we need to talk about this. And a recognition from a COVID point of view that actually all of us are vulnerable, And now what I'm wanting to try and do with this book is take us to that next level, because at the moment, even though we've opened up to a conversation about all of us being vulnerable, we're far more focused on the individual and what the individual can do for themselves. And that is absolutely crucial. But actually, as leaders, we also play a role and we influence people actually every day in the conversations we have with them. And we also have an ability to influence systemically which is really how the book's kind of split into these three sorts of themes, if you like. So, one theme is just grappling with this as an individual, understand mental health and understand a bit about why we're vulnerable and what we all need to do individually to look after our mental health, then understand how our interactions with each other, and I sort of come back to every conversation, has an ability to build up people or pull down people and so our shadow because of the way we interact with people as leaders is really important to own and understand and then the third part of the book really is about understanding systemically how we lead and how we create the cultures in our organizations that for better or worse do influence people's mental health and hopefully the book gives you a few practical tips along the way things to do <laughs> to uh, to make it mentally healthy not unhealthy
1: well, let's let's look at the vulnerability side and the reason I want to start there is because when I first came across the book and, and, and I started to well I didn't read it actually you read it to me through audible uh, and <laughs> I sort of I went into the book and I must admit I probably wasn't as enthusiastic about it as I should have been and I kind of my, my worry about the book was is this going to be a HR person just sort of talk you know coming out with talking points to me Okay. Yeah. And where the book hooked me straight away was. Immediately in the forward, I think it is you go into a story about how you actually didn't want to put the book out and you had yep. real self doubt and it was a moment of vulnerability immediately as the start of the book and I and I sort of thought as the reader I'm dealing with a human being here like this is you know this is going to be a very honest book it's not going to be what I'd say so it sort of changed my perception straight away but talk to us a bit more about the importance of vulnerability. Uh, from, you know, and, and was that a conscious decision on your part to sort of you know, show a little bit of vulnerability right at the start of the book and then what is the importance of that for leaders?
0: Gosh, how many hours have we got?
1: <laughs> I told <laughs> you we needed time today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, vulnerability, vulnerability is huge. So in the, the question of was it deliberate in putting something down that made me more vulnerable, it was deliberate but I'd also say actually that the, the forward I wrote, it just came out of me. So it wasn't kind of, oh, I need to be vulnerable here and I need to say something. It was just how I was feeling. And so therefore I go, I think I need to explain this up front. But it, it's this interesting thing. And we, we come back to part of the thing that I talk in the book is this idea of accepting that we have these two different parts to our brain. We have our thinking brain and our primitive brain And the easy way to think about this is that when we think about, we don't think about breathing, we don't think about digestion, we don't think about, you know, intellectually saying, can you please move this arm and put food in my mouth or whatever it might be. There's a whole lot of our brain that's just wired to do things without us actually realising it. And then, of course, we have the thinking brain and and we get caught up in thinking that we're thinkers more than, than beings. And so our primitive brain is constantly searching for threat, it constantly looks for things that could be of concern to us, and it also looks for pattern, and it's hooked by story. It's it's hooked into stories for good or bad. And if I link that back, and I can go into a whole lot of things about the primitive brain, if I link that back to vulnerability, there's a need for all of us to feel safe, and If we can look at someone else and that other person is prepared to be vulnerable with us, is prepared to acknowledge what they are struggling with, what they're challenged by, that that in itself opens up for that other person also to be more vulnerable and interestingly enough it's actually when we're more vulnerable that we can actually a feel safer and then b actually solve more complex problems because we're prepared to be more of who we are genuinely in the moment with it and it's not a like vulnerability isn't sitting there and going oh poor me i've had all these problems and i can't cope and that's the stuff it's not kind of a it's not, although at moments it can be falling apart completely, but it's just being able to go, do you know what? I'm human, you're human, we all struggle with things and if I can sit there and go, here are some of my struggles, then that can open up for others to go, oh, so glad to hear that you struggle because here's my struggles and within that lies the connection that opens up the power that we need as human beings to operate in this fairly complex world of ours.
1: Well, I know you said to me in our last brief conversation in preparation for this that you send out is it a daily email to your staff and just sort of you know, riff on what's going on in your life and it's it's when you are more vulnerable you get a lot more feedback and it sort of starts a conversation that way with your team.
0: It does actually it's not weekly. I am sorry, not daily, it's weekly. Okay. I think. Weekly's hard enough. Daily would be even harder. <laughs> and and more so because actually when you're crafting like it's easy if you just or well, it's easier if you're just chatting to someone, but when you're crafting an email, you're kind of you know, kinda of going, Oh, how am I how am I explaining this? But yes, absolutely, the times in which I've been able to to talk and not not a broad statement of I'm struggling, but here is something that's happened. Here is something that's happened this week and this is this is why I find it Difficult, and and like I'm sure, certainly a number of Melburnians, they've experienced death in this time in terms of knowing someone or someone that's been really, really unwell and not being able to see them, and and so there was a number of those sorts of moments for me in different times along the way where I was able to talk to people and reflect on it to say I've just been struggling because, so my auntie died during this time, and and I was lucky enough to be with her when she died which was an extraordinary gift to be there but most of my family wasn't and all of us couldn't go to the funeral and so there was kind of these reflections during different times in these emails to the team around how hard it is or how different it is and it is those moments of and my challenge and then my reflection on therefore what I'm grateful for and what I connect into to keep me going that then enabled people to respond to me with all sorts of reflections about things that were going on in their lives that that made them feel safe that they could share with me, which was great.
1: And do they just share that with you or is that shared across the whole team?
0: No, well, I mean, it's a team of about 120, so I don't know that many of them would necessarily want to do a reply all. So they don't tend to do a reply all. They tend to do a reply just to me, but share a personal story. And they'll, you know, some of them, because they've got ageing parents... Um, we'll talk about some of their challenges with ageing parents, or uh, or talk about loss. Um, you know, so people who've had you know experienced a miscarriage, or you know, you know, the death of a friend, or whatever it might be. So, but it's usually that it's the personal connection back there in that. So it's not the reply or look at me. It's you've personally reached, you've personally touched me in what you've said here, and so I therefore want to be. I feel like I can open up and acknowledge things to you as well.
1: Mm. Uh, The other part uh, to go back to the start of the book that really hooked me was the fact that you actually acknowledged that this is not going to be a book where, because a lot of the books that deal with with mental health in particular, they're written at at a level that is probably above the readers or the people that you're trying to reach. And above their yep. sort of uh, level of understanding, if you like, and I think when you acknowledge that, that sort of was my fear going into this book that this what this is what might happen. So, I, so again, that I'm, I'm, obviously that was a conscious thing to put that in the book. But talk a little bit about the importance of language and the importance of being conscious of that when you're trying to get messages across to people.
0: Oh, look, it's so it's so critical we you know i think i said before we're, we're hooked into story we're hardwired by story so if we're reading words and they don't resonate with us that that doesn't quite make sense to us then we don't we don't continue with it so so it was very conscious to go how do i be pragmatic i don't want to be i don't want to be preachy i don't want to go here's the solution and here I don't want to be too academic because then you lose people but then i don't want people to think it's not based in science like there's, there's some you know some reality around it but You know, one of the things, so I I had a book coach, so not someone that wrote it for me, but someone that was coaching me and encouraging me along the way, Kath or Kath Walters, who's brilliant. And one of the first things that she worked with me on, because I'd been trying to write the book myself and hadn't got anywhere. And the first coaching session that she spent with me was around who's the audience. And the audience had to be a person, couldn't even be a group of people. Like, as I described before, it's written for people who lead te- lead teams of teams in particular. It had to be a person because you were then right thinking about that person and you're right thinking about what's the language that makes the most sense to them. And, and then, of course, you hope that other people get appealed to that as well. But I think I just sort of discovered that in in the work that I do. I, I have so I often talk about Coles as my playground because I get the freedom to enjoy experimenting a bit with teams about. What makes a difference to you? How do we do things? And and let's think about, and I've always been conscious of language within that, that you need to make it accessible and practical if people are prepared to, if people want to do something with it.
1: As you know, I've, I've sort of said this to you uh, off here. I really enjoy the book. I'm not just saying that because we're on the <laughs> podcast here. But, and I guess the... the... Uh, the proof of the pudding there would be the Bruce Springsteen album came out on the Friday uh, that I'd started to read the book and I put off listening to the Springsteen album for the day just to go through Uh, and, and I sort of had to finish this chapter and I also said to you so in terms of looking at the storytelling part of this again so how would you, I mean, would you give specific advice to leaders about how to share those stories or is it just whatever you're comfortable with um, to try and sort of get that connection happening with your staff in a more meaningful way?
0: Great question. And in fact, one of the the fastest piece of advice I'd give is that there are two books and my team would laugh when I say this because they go, you know, this is my typical thing that I will say to someone, now there's a book you should read. So, um, there are two books, one by Gabriel Dolan, Stories for Work, and another one by David Pearl called Story for Leaders. And both of those books go into far more depth about how you think about stories and how you might weave them in. And Gabrielle's uh, is quite practical in the, the short stories that you can weave into things. But her, her key message with it, which I certainly live and breathe in what I do as well, is that it's got to be, it, you've got to share some of yourself because it's only in sharing some of yourself that um, people really, truly believe it. Like, so if someone else makes up the story for you and say, say this, say this, you know, this is a good thing to, to do. It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate in the same way and they don't get a sense of who you are. And, uh, I mean, go. I don't, I don't necessarily consciously have done this. Gabrielle suggests a really practical thing of going, go back to, childhood and start writing down all the sorts of events that you remember that happened you know in those formative years up to well you could keep going out throughout life but keep remembering of those sorts of stories and then sit with it for longer so if you sit for an hour or so, you'd be amazed the sorts of things that start to come out and you can then start to think about what's the connection how do I connect that part of me to something that I'm trying to do but I think that that's part of what I tend to do naturally I've been a writer for a long time as in journal writer. Obviously, this is my first book, but but I've been a journal writer for, you know, back to my teenage years, in <laughs> writing those angsty teenage uh, kind of diary things. So I actually think that the stories end up sticking with me because when something happens, I tend to write about it in my journal and then stop to think about what's going on and try to pull it apart and then bring it into it. But I think the key thing is to recognise that, We are driven by story, we're not driven by data and we're so caught up in, you know, so many people are caught up in this belief that, you know, it's the data that drives us. We're rational beings and and not recognising what we get hooked into from a story point of view. So you need to tell stories to get people along the journey and the stories that share some of who you are are the stories that are going to be most influential on your team.
1: And in terms of stories, I think it's, you also touch on the importance of connections uh, with with work, and when you think it, when I certainly, when I first heard you talk about connections, I was thinking about the personal connections, and that's what we're talking about there with the storytelling. But there is a number of different areas of connection that you need to be conscious of uh, as a team leader, and I'll give you one story from my time. Uh, as a team leader, and this has been the good thing about the book for me. It's really made me reflect on past experiences I've had as a team leader and within the corporate space and areas Mm -hmm. that I probably got it right and areas where I got it wrong. And, And if I went and did things again, I would do it differently. And there was one particular project I worked on where we... We're going in and making some changes to basically boost some productivity, make the staff's life a bit easier, you know, because this was a team that we went into, they were overworked, they were doing overtime, we said, look, we need to, you know, take a bit of pressure off this team, make their life a bit easier. And we thought we had this fantastic project that we were going in and putting into place. But no one was buying into it. And it was probably a couple of Mm -hmm. weeks into it. They said, well, can you talk to the staff, Darren, and, and see what's going on? And we went in and started to talk to the staff. And we realized they thought we were doing this because we wanted to ship all their jobs over to India and we wanted to retrench everyone. so And they sort of had that cognitive bias, which is something that you talk about within the book as well, where everything Mm. we were doing, well, these guys are coming in, they're a threat to me, and I don't want to work with them. And because we Mm. hadn't set up the connection with them and told them the story behind, well, this is why we're doing this, uh, that's why it failed. So talk to us a bit about, I guess, setting up those sort of connections and connecting people to their work and the importance of that from a leadership
0: point of view. Gosh, there's so much in that, and so, <laughs> so much in that story as well, because there is, so if I go back, first of all, that cognitive bias piece is the challenge, is that if we are convinced of something, our brains look for that pattern, and we can't help but see that pattern. Which is, which is fascinating and I think I use the example in the book around, you know, you, you buy it, you want to go and buy a car and all of a sudden you keep seeing that model of car on the road. And there's no more or less of that model of the car on the road than there's always, you know... Been, unless there's been some amazing sale or something, but um, but you pick them. You, you seem to find them more than others because that's what your brain is is currently geared into. So it becomes a challenge when organisations are looking at leading change, which let's face it, I think isn't change is the most is the only thing that's constant. That if you don't trust the person that's leading you through this space. And, you know, you're suspicious of what it means because we are bearing in mind, and sorry, I'm not finishing my sentence here, but this interesting thing about change, come back to that primitive brain, we are constantly searching for threat. And if there is change, change is uncertainty. And uncertainty in the end may not end up being bad because the change may end up being good for us. But whilst our brain is looking at it and seeing that in a light of uncertainty, I don't know what's going on here the cortisol is flooding through and we're more stressed about it. And therefore, the storytelling that helps to show us the benefit to us, that we are safe, that it's okay, or that we may not even be safe straight away because we all have to go through this uncertainty, but we're going through it together. So there's a safety in numbers and let's think about this. Then then that actually helps the brain to calm down and therefore be more open and listening to what this all really means. But the mistake that we make often during change is that we assume up front that we tell people the logical story, we assume people get the logical story, and off we go. Let's just do it. And, of course, if we're living and breathing it in the moment in leading it, we're we're less aware, if we're not consciously thinking about our team, of how our team's feeling about it. And so you cannot over-communicate during change. I think that's kind of the the basic principle of it is that you need to keep telling stories that connect people to you and connect people to feeling psychologically safe. And if they believe in you because of the stories that, that you talk to them about... Then, then they'll go with you through that journey, and it. This comes back to what we were saying before about you've got to link it back to your own personal stories, because if you're standing there just spouting out the corporate position, it doesn't hook people. They don't. They don't see you. They just see you spouting words that are from an organisation, and so they may or may not believe that. But if you share part of who you are, share stories of what's happened in your past and and why it is that, that therefore, you see this change as valuable for you and and for everyone, and this is what we can think about in this way, then that can hook people
1: in. Yeah, well, I mean, and another story that I came across within the book, and I think this is why it's it's valuable to have this conversation, because when I go through some of these stories and some of the things that popped up for me within the book, and, and you've just done a really good job there of sort of you know, saying why that's important and and what's actually going on there from the from the mental uh, health point of view, if you like, uh, of a team and what, why it is important to share those stories. And I said to you, when uh, you, you reading your book, actually saved my week last week, and I wanted to describe mm. this story and then get you to sort of describe back to me what happened uh, and why this this sort of feeling happened with me. So I was I started that last week. On Monday, a little bit of Mondayitis, you know, not feeling overly motivated towards the week, and then I got to around four o'clock, and normally I would have just pushed through and said, "Look, I'll just, I'll I'll get on with the rest of my week," and sort of would have stayed in a little bit of a rut for at least a couple of days, maybe for the, the entire week. And I thought, no. From reading your book, I thought, no, I've got to take some positive action here and, and do something to try and break myself out of this funk. So I went and did some volunteer work at the local homeless shelter, a young lady setting up here uh, where I live down the south coast of New South Wales. And when I came home from from helping out for a couple of hours where I would help mow the lawns and do some whippersnippering. So I, f- I found immediately I was like I was walking taller, I, had a, I was breathing easier. Uh, I just had more motivation to get on with the week. So just from, I guess, connecting to that community uh, project, feeling I belong with something, having her say thank you so much for doing that, feeling valued, getting out and getting the sunshine on my face and sort of doing some physical exercise. Talk me through some of the things that that's that that's triggered within me, that's helped me to get through the week and and helped me uh, to feel better about myself uh, and and move from, I guess, yellow through through to green. And, and that's opened up a lot of things to talk about, I know. Yeah. But... <laughs> I
0: love that. I love that story. So if we start with just that reference to the continuum and understanding what that means. So we need to accept that both for our physical health and our psychological health, we operate on a continuum. And if I take back to when I was in uh, uni, my first lecture in psychiatry, and this lecturer was describing various different mental illnesses, and I was sitting there getting slightly worried because he was describing things that i did and 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 then he was describing things that my friend did and we were both looking at each other going oh you do that i do that oh we do that and we diagnosed ourselves with i don't know how many mental um disorders before we got about 20 minutes into the to the lecture now he was being deliberately provocative in doing this because what he was trying to get us to understand is it's not actually the diagnosis itself That impacts how significant something is it's actually the impact on daily living so we can have a diagnosis but be completely fine and I think what's really good to understand this is something like diabetes from a physical point of view so if we go here's a continuum from green to yellow to orange to red and if you think at the both extremes green is I'm great feeling good all's fine in the world I might not be necessarily jumping around cloud nine but feeling balanced and what have you. Yellow is that uh, kind of time. Orange is it's a bit more serious and then red says really need to be in hospital or need serious medical help to help me. I can have a diagnosis of diabetes Um, but not be in red because actually I know how to control my diet and how, um, therefore, my blood sugars are controlled and I can remain in green the entire time. Sure, I have to keep getting tests to make sure that my um, diabetes is under control, but I can still happily sit in green. And we move throughout those. Well, hopefully we don't get to red, but most of us at some point in our lives will get to red at some point on physical health. But most of it, we all sit typically between green and yellow and so green we're feeling good yellow you know we didn't sleep last night we drank too much we ate too much we haven't been exercising you know we didn't sleep well whatever it might be that we just feel there and before we get more significantly unwell and in that orange space we you know it might be yeah look we're really physically unfit we're going to have a personal trainer to help us to bring us back um or you know we might have um i mean i'd even put a cold in yellow it's just the kind of space sort of thing but it's the same with our psychological health that we go into these funks and i kind of often think about yellow in just in that general unbalanced state just don't feel great which down what you were describing is kind of like i was sitting in that yellow of just just not not feeling like i'm bouncing around much and if we don't do something proactively that shifts us back to green we end up getting used to that feeling as a normal feeling and and not saying it's abnormal, but as a usual feeling or a common feeling. And it hangs around for longer and longer. And if we don't address it slowly, but surely we slip into that orange where we, we start to get a lot more negative and a lot more struggling and potentially need more help to bring us back. But if we link back to that story around um, the primitive brain and In the primitive brain, there's some fascinating chemicals that get released that are actually, again, all geared around our survival. And so we talked briefly before about cortisol. So cortisol is the one that gets released when our brain's detecting that something is a threat. And cortisol makes us more alert. So a small amount of cortisol is really good. It's reminding us, hey, 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 there's something here, there's something here, what's going on? What do we do with it? And if we can then take the right action, the cortisol then decreases again and we can feel better. And taking the right action fits into one of these other three sort of key categories. So one is around being able to elicit oxytocin. So oxytocin is the um, the drug of belonging, if you like, or the chemical of belonging. And we, and, and I think i describe in the book as well about this value of thinking back to Neolithic man and, and or humans, I should say, and... That idea that if you're on your own out in the wild, that's a pretty scary space to be. But if you are with your tribe, then you're going to feel safer because you appreciate safety in numbers. So we're hardwired to value connection, to see that together we are stronger than individually. The next part of that is then serotonin. And serotonin is the the drug of value, if you like, of going, I'm valued for who I am. You see me for who I am and value my contribution to what I do for the tribe. And in the context of primitive times, you think about the, um, you know, the person that was the best at making a fire or the best at killing the saber-toothed tiger or the best at at finding the the right sorts of berries to be able to eat whatever it might have been that people go, oh, you're awesome because that's the skill that you bring to our tribe. So you have a sense not only of I've got safety in numbers, but I contribute in some way to that tribe and that makes me feel better. And then dopamine is this other interesting one and dopamine is one of, again, all things in balance. We don't want an overdose of this, but when you think about cortisol is searching for problems, dopamine is the one that that it's called, I, I think about it as a drug of pattern and pleasure in that it looks for pattern. And if we can find pattern, we can make sense of the world. And so we get a bit of a dopamine hit to go, oh, we've learned something, great, this is good. And it pleases us. And so we kind of get that pleasurable, oh, this is pretty good. We've learned something new in doing this, love that. And so I think about that as an achievement or learning one. Now if I kind of that's kind of the overarching story of it because what we're trying to do with our primitive brains is if we understand that these chemicals exist in our brains, all of us have them, and all of us can do things actively that trigger them, then we've got our best bet of finding the balancing act of managing our mental health. And so in your space, you going you woke up in that blair, sort of you know feeling pretty flat, unenergetic, back in that yellow sort of area and then what you're then looking for and you weren't you weren't necessarily consciously doing it although I think in the end you probably were because you said you'd read the book and went ah maybe I do need to do something here (laughs) and that's part of what it is, is saying you have to be aware enough to go this is what's bubbling up for me right now I recognize that I'm in yellow therefore what can I do that can bring me back to green now there are two components then that you mentioned there that that link in quite nicely into bringing you back to green. And one of them is actually purely about the physical exercise and the sunshine. So there is our physical and our mental selves are so intertwined that our ability to get back into nature, to to feel... It's almost like sort of feeling like we're part of something bigger. It starts to sound philosophical about it, but there is something about being in nature and there is something about moving that our body goes, oh, this is good, this is good, getting out, doing something feels better. So there's an element of that in our physical and psychological cells connecting in to go, I feel much better for that. But also you are helping someone else. And so your contribution to someone else triggers that serotonin. And that's part of what then triggers you back to green because you can sit there and go, whether or not you're completely conscious of it or not, your primitive brain is clearly conscious of it and going, you've just helped someone. You've done something that you know is good for someone else. You're not doing it out of a... um, it's not so often talk about dopamine can be the faulty serotonin in some ways when we think about, I'll do something on social media and get recognised on social media for doing something. If you're doing it because you want to be recognised, that, that it's more in that sort of superficial space, then that's not what, what triggers the serotonin. But for you selflessly sitting there going, I know I have someone that needs help and I am going to help them. And um, by, you know, being out in the garden, mowing the lawns, et cetera, for them, then and you could see the level of appreciation on their face from doing that serotonin comes in and there you are back in green and able to make the most of your week far more so than had you just sat at home and, and wallowed in how you were feeling.
1: Well, I think here we're getting into the real nitty-gritty of the value that this book provides, because it gives you a level of self-awareness of your own mental health, but also allows you to start thinking about, well, how can I impact this on my team? So give us some ideas, I guess, on some simple ways that you can trigger these chemicals within your team when you're acting this way as a leader.
0: Yeah, so, well, actually, there's probably two parts to it, because I think one of the things with being a leader is it's great if you can share though this sort of concept of so I talk about in the book about the mental health pie because I do believe that a common language helps to bind people together so the more that you can create that common language as a starting point the better because then everyone is a bit more self-aware rather than you trying to trigger things without them knowing what you're trying to do if that makes sense Mm. but if I then come back to you know we all need to feel like we been seen, that we've been heard and that we matter, that that's that's a fundamental part of of who we are. Then I come back to thinking about how do you build connection, how do you make sure people feel valued and how do you make sure that people are continuing to learn in what they're doing. And, And I think about some of the simple things and I appreciate that during COVID everyone's work circumstances are different. And I've been very conscious of that in working at Coles because my team are office-based, so they have all been working from home, so home remotely. So we're sort of trying to work out how we build connection there. And then, of course, we have connection into the teams in stores that are all still working, getting up and going out every day and and being in stores and facing unhappy customers. Actually, shouldn't say that. They're not all unhappy. Every now and again you have unhappy people, but generally they're great. But if I go back to my own team and start with, connection and going how do I build connection with people then part of it has been these weekly emails which I said I hadn't planned to do them they just started to evolve but they are moments in which I share reflections about what's happening for me and invite people to then think about things in their own life so I'm not sort of saying you should do this you should practice gratitude you should be mindful you should meditate or whatever But being able to go, this is what I've been struggling with, this is what I'm trying, and and find it really useful. And I've found this particular quote inspiring and just thought it might be useful and interesting to you kind of thing. So opening and inviting people to reflect on things in their own life. We do a fortnightly, what we call a huddle. It's a Zoom or Microsoft Teams meeting with everyone. But connection is a really important part of that as well in terms of getting laughter happening. So laughter is one of the fastest ways to build connection with people. So finding a way of creating laughter is awesome. And can I tell you, one of the best ways during this time of COVID that's created the laughter is technology that hasn't worked. And that we've just been in stitches at times. With you know, someone is so delayed in their responses that you know we're three minutes into the next conversation and then their voice comes through, <laughs> through on it. Or your yeah, person's frozen, and so we're like, yeah, uh, they were saying something profound, but no, we've lost them again. Don't know what what it's happening. And and of course, I think in an old old world pre-COVID and everything, when you'd only had some people on you know on Skype, whatever it might be you'd end up, I think at times you could get annoyed by the fact that things aren't working. Whereas I think we just got to the point of going, you have to laugh. So that sort of laughter is really, really great. And giving a sense of how people feel valued, I think, is also a really important part of saying you belong, you know, with our team. We've done little things, one of my team, in fact, and saying they did point out they didn't come up with the idea, they found it out from some other business, and I'm not too sure which business originally came up with it, but we sent a little parcel to everyone in Melbourne who was still in, in lockdown with a a couple of books and pens because we're going, we think you might need some stationery, by the way, because you've been locked away for so long. So here's what was stationery and then here's a few other little things and, you know, there was the rubber band to go, just remember, you need to be flexible but don't break and a marble to go when you've lost yours, Hold, here's one for you and some chewing gum to say, remember, you know, we stick together. So, you know, kind of some of those sorts of things that create a little bit of laughter but a sense of connection between people and we do we do recognition in our huddles. so every fortnight we're encouraging people to say, who do you want to thank? Who in the team has done something? And we've really encouraged people to go, just share a story about something little. Don't stop to wait to think it has to be something big in order to say thank you to someone else is a really important part of just encouraging everyone to say thank you to each other. And actually in the huddle what we also do is we have these get to know you sections and we've been working through various different people in the team and started with me and worked from there where there's these two slides and one slide is just a collection of some of your photos that reflect who you are and the other slide is a series of questions that you have to answer. And and it's been really interesting, again, sharing some of those stories that people will reflect on, on things like, what was the worst thing you did as a child? And, of course, a number of people. I think one of the guys last week said, oh, I am only going to confess that to St Peter at the Pearly Gates. And so we laugh about some of those sorts of stories there and you know one of the other interesting things I did and it was just a bit of experiment and it's not the sort of thing that you could repeat often but it's that recognition of how the little things count because even when you go let's use this huddle and let's make sure people get thanked invariably some people's names come up a lot more often than others and there'll be some people whose names aren't mentioned in in that, that huddle and so we have it calls these thank you cards. They're like postcards that you can write to people and and it's kind of it's kind of a special thing to get one of these. I love them when I get them and I've created a, a folder that keeps these for you know recollections and and uh, reminders of, of the impact that you can have. But I wrote a thank you card to everyone in the team, and of course, you know for, it, it wasn't necessarily thank you for one specific thing that I know you've done. But it was a thank you for you know contributing to what we're doing as a team, and and again those sorts of little things. I'm always fascinated. When it wasn't little in it. It took a long time to write 120 cards, so that I hadn't really appreciated <laughs> what I was taking on when I did it. But getting something personal in the mail, and just again the emails that I've got back from people, and you don't hear from everyone, but just those emails from people that I I barely I don't talk to that often kind of thing. You can go yes that has had an impact on someone because someone's sitting there going, I've been seen, I've been sane and I matter to someone because they've chosen to take the time to write this to me.
1: Mm, exactly. And I think the key point too, which you've sort of touched on, is it needs to be organic, doesn't it? I mean, it can't be overly yeah. planned and feel that way.
0: It's such a thing because we get caught up in it, don't we? We're going, right, okay, come on, let's do this and let's do that. And like,
1: well, then oh. it just becomes another box to tick, doesn't it? It can't yeah. feel like that to anyone. It just has to be something yeah. that becomes second nature. I mean, do you sense a shift in a, in a focus on mental health? I mean, because I, you know, for example, with me, and we talked, you know, you, we're talking about the the green, yellow uh, to red. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I took up AFL again, and, and anyone that would talk to me, I would tell them how sore I was and how much I was struggling to get through the week after playing that. And I thought, if, but if that was something I was struggling with my mental health, I would, probably, I would more most certainly just keep it to myself and I'm not as comfortable talking about it. But the your sense of shift from, I guess, through COVID has sort of crystallised our thinking on this? And I also get a sense that the, the generation that's coming through is much more comfortable talking about their mental health as well. I mean, do you get a sense of both of those things that, that there is a bit of a shift about the way we're viewing mental health at work?
0: I, I do. I do. I have great hope that if there is good to come out of COVID, it is this shift, and that the longer COVID goes on, the greater the likelihood that it is a real shift. It's not just a blip of moment of vulnerability and then we go back into a defensive mode. It's still... So I think a whole lot of people are appreciating far more how vulnerable everyone is because of COVID. So COVID is uncertainty amplified for the world. And our brains are in overload a bit by it. And it's why we are seeing a whole lot more people struggling is because what worked in the past won't work now because there's too much cortisol coming through for us all. And so we have to up the ante and everything that we're doing. So because more people are exposed, there is a greater appreciation of, oh, right, okay, maybe, maybe we need to do something about this. And and there is a greater ability to go, maybe I can't talk about stuff, but it's still not as comfortable as it could be. Now, granted, if you talk about physical health as well, not everyone wants to actually talk about the physical health either. So there's an element of going, I you know, people go, oh, I feel funny, you know, I'm sitting there going, Oh just the flu. Just the flu or it's just a stomach bug sort of thing. Whereas if it's something a bit more personal, people won't always feel as likely to share. And you don't want to create a space where there's an expectation that people should just share. Of course you should share, come on, just just say it. Mm -hmm. But what you're wanting to do is trying to create an environment where it's, it's comfortable and okay to do so. And that's what actually, why it's important when you're asking earlier on about the leader's role, and I talked about common language, that a common language is the starting point for helping people to be able to have a bit of a conversation around it and it's why actually I like this idea of just being able to say I'm just having a bit of a yellow day or I'm, I feel like I might be sliding into orange is easier as a, an opening point to people rather than going on I'm, I'm feeling really anxious or i don't actually really know what i'm feeling like i'm not too emotional it's like it you know it's an interesting thing even coming back down to the uh, the story that you told before about yourself and waking up on a monday morning and going well could you put it could you put a name to it could you sit there and go this is what i'm feeling or is blur kind of best, <laughs> the best description sometimes and and therefore so i think that common language will help people to share more and shift it more. But each, what I do appreciate is, uh, one, different organisations are at different, sounds cliche to say different points of the journey, but they are in terms of, so like at Coles, we had a really well-established program of mental health before COVID hit which meant that as COVID hit, we upped the ante with what we did, but we already had such a good foundation of conversation around it that it then enabled it to to go further from there. Whereas you look at some companies and then actually countries. So I was was chatting to someone from McKinsey the other day, actually, that was reflecting on where they see Australia is at versus countries over in, in Europe in particular, or Europe or the US, and that we are a lot further along than other countries in talking about this as well. Perhaps worries me slightly (laughs) that it might take longer for other countries to catch up and, and have this conversation. But I think, well, I said yes is the short answer to begin with and I've given you then a longer answer, but I do believe that we are shifting in our appreciation and understanding that we are all responsible for our mental health as much as we're responsible for our own physical health. And that just like with physical health, there are some things that genetically, we're just unfortunately lands us in the red because of certain things. Most illnesses that we have, have a lifestyle-induced part of it in the physical side of things, and exactly the same psychologically. That again, we may be born with particular genetics, we may have particular events that are so significant that land us in red really quickly. But there is so much that goes on that is lifestyle-induced within it. And I do think we're starting to get a lot better in corporates in recognising that we can all do something individually and we can do something collectively to improve our mental health.
1: Yeah, what's well, interesting you're saying that was I, and, and the reason I sort of talked about the the next generation coming through, I I was reminded in preparation for this of uh, going into the shops and it and it was actually Coles, but as as luck would have it, and uh, I was going through the self check and it was just one of those days where it was just absolute madness at the time, and I could just see uh, the sort of COVID marshal that was there. He was having a he looked a bit flustered by the amount of people and trying to sort of maintain social distancing and things like that. And I sort of quietly said to him, oh, was a bit of a tough time or a busy time. And he sort yep. of looked at me and said, oh, he said, this is triggering my fight or flight mechanism, you know, and, and sort <laughs> of a big, deep breath. And then he sort of exhaled and thought, oh, I'm glad I could say to someone, I'm, I'm just a bit yeah. stressed. And I thought it was interesting, the language he used, because he's obviously very conscious of his own mental health at that point. I mean, is that the sort of culture that you're trying to to get yes. across within carls yeah
0: yeah absolutely absolutely and because i realized i didn't actually answer the second part of the question about younger generation because <laughs> yes i do think i do think the younger generation are, are better at this that that the more time goes on the more that their people are a greater ability to access their emotions and talk more about it and think that there's a real conscious thing within education more so around emotional literacy about how do we help people to name their emotions and deal with them having said that we're also faced with some fairly confronting stories and and stats around the rates of anxiety and depression in younger people as well And so we've kind of, it's this double-edged sword that we've got a greater awareness of things but we've also got some challenges which starts to then link into some of the issues with technology and what's causing some challenges for our younger, for kids and and we need to do a whole lot to help to get them non-addicted to social media Mm. and, and understanding and appreciating how else they can build up their mental health
1: high. And talk about how easy it is to just sort of slip into that state of yellow. And I guess any advice you'd have for people to to take stock of where they're at and increase their self-awareness. And I'm reminded of the story that you told within the book where you sort of, and, and it kind of sort of came across a bit offhand where you said, oh, I'd, I'd slipped into yellow and didn't realise it. And then I was, I I found myself crying after work every day and it was such a tough time. And I sort of thought to myself, how could you not realise that you'd slipped in the yellow at that point? But then I also thought about different times in my working career where I've been in difficult situations. And it wasn't until I got out of that that I looked back on it and thought, gee, that was a really toxic environment. What, would you give any advice to people on ways you can sort of take stock of where you're at and just sort of try and separate yourself and, and, and have a look at where you're at in your life?
0: Yeah, because I think... It, um... You know, I often talk about in the book about the frog. You know, you put the frog in cold water and you slowly warm it up, and it doesn't actually realise that the water's warming up. Or it's like, you know, if you, if you're in, if you're suddenly in thick fog, you realise you're suddenly in thick fog. <laughs> but if you're not, if the fog bit by bit, you know, it comes along, then your eyes just keep adjusting to to it. Maybe, or maybe it's like eyesight deteriorating, right? And you don't realise <laughs> your eyesight's deteriorating. So, things, things can kind of slightly happen there. And so, yeah, there are a few things in the book. So, I talk about from a mental health point perspective this idea of connecting to self and how you need to check in with yourself and, and regularly uh, understand where you're at. And the first part of it too is recognising that you can't, you should not be beating yourself up when you land in yellow. I think that's certainly the first message within it because we One of the risks when we've started to understand more about what was, what was being coined the positive psychology movement is that we've got, you know, people are risk getting caught up in the, we can be happy, and if we're happy about things, we'll be fine, and not wanting to acknowledge the emotions that are negative, and that's actually just as damaging for us. Um, because we're trying to suppress them and we're not recognising it. So there's I kind of talk about a few different things that help you stop and go, where am I? The first one is energy levels. and with the energy levels, I talk about you know thinking about energy being zero to ten and zero is I'm um, fast asleep, I really you know I'm exhausted and i'm I'm absolutely asleep there. And ten, is actually 10 is not good, as in it's the extreme energy. It's the I'm running around at a million miles an hour and I've got adrenaline running through my body and I'm all over the place. I could be really super excited. So every now and again getting to super excited can be fun, but it's not sustainable and it's not great for our body. And, and so an energy level that sits around that, you know, five to six mark is a really good sort of balanced space. And so it's interesting to sort of, stop and go what's happening with my energy so am I either full throttle or asleep so I'm running a million miles an hour or I'm just comatized and I, I can't do anything am I the other end dragging myself out of bed and it's really really hard or am I finding myself in a middle kind of reasonable space so that's kind of that first one about where's my energy the second one is to check in with emotions and so it's being able to and we talk about emotional literacy before with kids actually adults need a whole lot to learn about emotional literacy as well so that you you move beyond just the basic descriptions of sad or angry or upset and start pulling out more kind of descriptive words of what am i really feeling and if you're sitting there going i find myself stuck with negative emotions more than not so it's not oh god i've got a negative emotion at the moment this is not good It's recognising going, if I really reflect on this day or this week and I feel like I've been more negative than positive, then something's going on. And so that ability to go, what's the emotions that are bubbling up? And are they that the emotions are hanging around for too long? Are they that emotions are coming up disproportionate to what's happening there? they're sort of good indicators that you go something else is happening I probably need to kind of understand what this emotion is trying to tell me which is the key point about not suppressing it it doesn't mean sit and wallow in sadness or blindness for you know an extended period of time it just goes what's that trying to tell me and what do I need to do with it and the other one is to check in with what I call the classroom inside your head so we get caught up in Loose of conversation our head with ourselves that we don't really realise. And I often suggest, Or in fact, in the book I talk about the movie Inside Out, so a movie that's worth watching um, because it's, it's this idea that we've just got these conversations that go inside our head. And if we, and it's like our pattern-seeking brain is caught up in it. So we're talking before, you know, about, you know, I want to buy a red car and, oh, my goodness, I keep seeing all of these red cars. Where's the next red car? Oh, that's an interesting red car. You know, like these things keep going there. But when we find ourselves caught up with conversations, and the good one is if we're annoyed with someone and if you find yourself either replaying the situation in which you got annoyed or having imaginary conversations with the other person, imagining what the next conversation with them is like, and hilariously, we get more annoyed having a conversation inside our head that actually is a conversation that's not... It's in our imagination. Like, it's we're, we're imagining what the other person's going to say and we do this, we all do it, but that classroom, when that classroom gets noisier and you're stuck in the same loops, there's some good indications that you might need to do something to stop the loop. So so they're, they're the sorts of things, because so, ultimately, and look, it's always good to stop and think about your environment as well, to go, what's going on in the environment right now that causes more uncertainty that can be triggering that cortisol for me? But ultimately, and it's not it's not what happens outside us but how our brain's interpreting us that is the key thing. So they're the sort of good ways of stepping into what's actually happening for you right now, which really is that ability to stop and how do I take a deep breath?
1: It's also acknowledging that it is part of being human is you're going to move up and down. Uh, that, yes that sort of realm of of mental health and I and, and before you even mention it I was reminded of the movie inside out and how you sort of mm. um, and, and it also reminded I went and I saw Henry Rollins, who's a great spoken word listen he did a spoken word concert uh, in our local area and he said he'd recently lost a friend and he said I he said, I oh, really, part of me wanted to move on. He said, another part of me wanted to just hang with that feeling for a bit. And he said, it was actually very helpful for me to just, you know, acknowledge the sadness that I felt and just sort of, yeah. you know, because it is part of being human, isn't it? To sort of understand we, we will move up and down and it's totally normal to move up and down that mental health spectrum.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and with things like sadness too, like as I think, Grief's a really interesting thing loss-wise and when we lose someone very dear to us, you have that you know initial outpouring of support from people and, of course, everyone else gets on with their lives and you're still going, yeah, but I'm still grieving this person. But that's quite normal and we need to be able to sit with that and, and be okay with it. And, in fact, it can still keep coming back to us. And I think about my father and my father died a long, long time ago now, but there are still you know moments where I can get that sense of, and and it whether it's sadness now, whether it perhaps has shifted to a longing of, oh, if only he could hear just for this moment, just to see to see this with his grandchildren, or to see this experience with the family, or you know, whatever it might be. So I think that acceptance of um, it's just normal. It's normal to to go up and down, and and in fact it's. it's that it's being stuck which is the problem Mm. so being stuck whether we're stuck in everything's fine we're happy we're happy (laughs) and you go yeah it's not normal is, is, is is as unhelpful as being stuck in the oh poor me and life's awful and I can't do anything about it so we're fluid and we it's to be human is to experience that array of different emotions We just need to be more literate about them and understand, ah, okay, there's that emotion showing up for me right now and that's okay and I can sit with it and understand it and see what it's trying to tell me and then go, okay, now what do I need to do because I need to get myself and and in getting back to green I think about this concept of getting back to balance. So it's not about Mm -hmm. um, getting back to happiness Although, you know, because I think contentment's probably a better description than happiness, but but balance in, in where we're at.
1: And I think, again, we're, we're touching on the real importance of the book because it's, it's sort of, it's trying to set up, and I guess ideally someone's going to read this book and they're going to be able to set up an environment where they're comfortable in their own skin to be able to move up and down that, that sort of mental health spectrum, if yes. you like, but also allow their team, the freedom to be able to do that, uh, yes. and, and move up and down. I mean, is that a, that's a fair reflection? I think, isn't it, of, of what we yeah. would love people to get out of this book. Or what I say we, what you would love to get people out of <laughs> this book, and obviously I'd love to see it as well. Uh, as, as, I, I'd as I'd love it. to see it,
0: I'd love to see it. And look, do you know in uh, when when I was deciding who to write for and and cath had taken me through a few kind of different iterations because i originally wanted to write for so many people um and to help people in so many different ways and and i narrowed it down and narrowed it down and i ended up getting down to two particular people that i'd been working with and um coaching with some stuff and i ended up recognizing that there was this distinct difference between these last two people And they're both really lovely people but the person that I ended up choosing to write it for was that person who could sit there themselves and go, "Oh, I need to do a few things myself, don't i?" and And like they both they both came to me with the same problem of saying, "We have some concern about what's going on in our team, and we're worried about the mental health of people within the team, and so I think we need to do something about it. Can you help me?" And in both of them, starting that same starting conversation with them, one of them very, very quickly went, oh, I think I really need to do some stuff about myself first, don't I? And I'm like, oh, magic, magic, yes. And so let's spend some time on you and how you want to show up for the team. Whereas the other person, the other person was prepared to share some vulnerability with me. But wasn't quite able to shift that to vulnerability with the team that they were with. And so we still did things, but it was in a different way and didn't have the same impact. So ultimately, what I really hope that the book can help people to do is be able to tap into being human first and recognising it's normal for us all to move up and down and I'm going to move up and down just as much as anyone else and I need to be able to be comfortable with that, comfortable with my own skin and share those stories with others in order for everyone else to feel more comfortable in sharing that language because then we can help each other And, and that's what I see then starts to happen is that, you know, one person doesn't feel so great and the others will naturally come in to pick up and support and help. And of course, at another time, that someone else is not feeling so great. So once you're able to get into a way in which we operate, that we all recognise we have good days and we have not so good days. And if we feel okay at acknowledging that, then others can help us with it. And it's like, I was listening to something the other day, and in fact, so my son is is, it, is, an, is an actor and he um, was I was sharing the story with him and he was going like, so true so true around doing ad-lib like it sports and improvisation theater improvisation and this group was talking about what are the golden rules of improvisation because the theory is that actually we as leaders and teams can learn so much from the art of improvisation in acting. And one of the key rules within that is to sit there and remember you're all supporting actors. So you're not there for you. You're there for the greater good of the team and you therefore don't try and dominate in any part of it but recognise what's going on for everyone else and work out when you need to step in and support and when someone else will support you.
1: Mm -hmm. And I get the sense, I mean... You sort to think back across your career. Do you? Would you prefer to be on Broadway at the moment rather yeah. than?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> no, actually, but it's funny though. Cause, yeah. So my, I mean, I originally watched I did originally want to be on stage, and and I love, um I love musical theatre. I love acting and that sort of stuff. And but. But it's it's an interesting experience, and there is this kind of connection to what I do now, because I often say, my son wants to pursue acting, and I go, it's great, love it, go for it. It's always good to have a backup plan, and I go, I kind of feel like I'm on a stage now. It's just a different stage, in in how we interact with people. But I remember I did a, an about face in my uni preferences when I was leaving year twelve because I had wanted to study drama. And I went so far as to do the audition and I pulled out after the audition and I was actually quite happy with how I did the audition. But the thing that I struggled with was that, you know, that concept of improvisation and being in a room full of supporting actors. It wasn't. It was I was in a room full of peacocks. I was in a room full of people that wanted to talk about how important they were. And I was kind of like, well, that's not me. And and then did occupational therapy where I met the closest friends that I that I've ever had, and and um, actually I probably shouldn't say that my school friends might not like <laughs> me saying that, but I met people that I just felt so completely understood who I was, and um, and we're still really good friends now. And we, and and we're all in that profession of helping, of all wanting to help others. But yes, you know, who knows? You know, maybe that that's my last career. I'll end up on stage. <laughs>
1: Okay, Genevieve. Well, look. Thanks for joining me today. We might we'll leave it there. There's so many questions that I didn't get to. Uh, I said to you, I, I could have talked to you for two, three hours. Uh, I'm sure. We. But thanks for taking time out today. Uh, I know you're on a, a week's break at the moment, sort of getting some things together. But what, what is there any plans to write a second book at this stage? Like, what what's next for Genevieve Hawkins?
0: Yeah. Do you know what? I reckon I have book two, three, and four, Darren, in my head. So yeah. so yes, I, I do want to. I do want to write some more as I keep looking at where to help people and, and my intentions had been as I'd finished the book, I'd already had some further ideas to go into more depth in the workplace and try and help people in the workplace. Interestingly enough, I've had some conversations with people in education ha- that have read the book and have said, what about writing a book for primary, you know, late primary school kids to help as well? And I'm like, oh, okay. hadn't thought about it. So who knows? But I think the main thing from my point of view is that whatever I do, my intention is to try and help. How, how do I help people connect? How, how do I help people better connect with themselves and better connect with each other? Because that will help us reverse the trend of mental illness in, the, in, in our developed world. And I also do believe that in the world in which we live in, if we can't get that bit right of working out how we better connect with each other, we don't have a hope in hell of actually solving. The really complex problems we face as a world so that's kind of you know what I want to spend with whatever is left of my life is going how do we how do we help people better connect and make this world a better place
1: so there you have it as I said at the outset a fascinating conversation today with Genevieve Hawkins and really if you can only take away one or two things uh, from their conversation that we've had. I want you to focus in on what Genevieve says about bringing yourself back to balance. And we talked about the synergies at the start of this that balance to life and Genevieve's work in her book, Mentally at Work, have. And I think the use of that sort of language really highlights that across the board. So if you can use this as an impetus, not only to look at ways of getting your own life back into balance, but hopefully it's piqued your enthusiasm and your curiosity to go and check out Genevieve's book, Mentally at Work, which can be found at online bookstores such as Amazon, Booktopia, and you can also download the audio version which I did through Audible, and also seek some more information about Balance to Life at our website, www.balancetolife.com.au, and find out a little bit more about the type of work that we're doing to help bring together wellbeing, inclusion, and belonging within the moments that matter across people's work and life balance. So I thank Genevieve again for her time today and I thank you for joining me and I look forward to joining you again soon with some more engaging conversations on the Moments That Matter
0: platform.